0: Hello, dystopianist futurist activists, and artists. I'm Grant Faulkner, a person who used to think of the word dystopian as primarily an adjective for the future, as in dystopian future, which meant to state that might happen to us if we weren't smart enough to change our ways, and surely we're smart enough to uh, change our ways, right? But I'm thinking of our guest today, Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenya, and his first novel, Chain Gang All-Stars, and Nana has said that we're living in a dystopian present, which is paradigm shifting and arresting and disturbing, but perhaps accurate. We had another uh, writer on a couple of years ago, Cory Doctorow, and the theme of that show is actually dystopia now. So, Brooke, I thought we should explore what a dystopia is to ground our discussion today when you hear the word dystopia what do you think of
1: yeah i definitely associate the word dystopia with dark uh maybe not apocalyptic but kind of there <laughs> and so to yeah. me dystopia is the opposite of utopia And if utopia is a perfect, fantastical place to be, future or present, then dystopia is the opposite of that. And not just not perfect, but bleak, dangerous, scary. And personally, my worldview is that we are in dystopia now, for sure, because of our current political climate and all the things that are scary, right? I mean, gun violence, uh, wealth disparity, climate crisis. I could go on, Grant, but I won't.
0: Well, you're not far off because Merriam-Webster says that a dystopia is an imaginary place where people are unhappy and usually afraid because they are not treated fairly. I think it's interesting that they qualified or they use the word imaginary. Uh, I also read that common elements of dystopian fiction include societies engaged in forever wars. And characterized by extreme social and economic class divides, mass poverty, environmental devastation, anarchy, and the loss of individuality. So you pretty much named all of, all of those criteria. But a lot of people are, you know, we know living bountiful lives. And I'll include myself in that bountiful life group. So it's just not people in the 1%. And, and this made me think of one nuance to dystopia. It's not evenly distributed. It might not affect you and me, or at least not yet, or not a lot, but it is affecting many people in the world. So I think we should include our our present in dystopia, which changes the genre of dystopian fiction into something not imaginary, but very real to some. Uh, What do you think about that, Brooke? (laughs)
1: It's a really good point. And also dystopian fiction has been the realm of science fiction and fantasy because of the notion that, as you said, I mean, it's been qualified that it's like an imagined place. But if we're talking about fiction that has these kinds of scarier elements, then we certainly should have dystopian commercial fiction, dystopian historical fiction. Uh, I don't think that society has ever really been in a state of utopia, obviously. Uh, So, you know, maybe there's been few periods of historical calms. So, I feel like dystopia actually is more of the norm, and then utopia is the one that's the fantasy. So, I think it should be up for reconsideration, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, we're getting bleak, Brooke. Uh, so listeners, uh, hang in there because there is hope in this show. In, in fact, one thing that interests me with Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya is that he says that both art and activism are spawned by love. He says that if love is at the core of art and activism, then harming anyone is an abomination, which made me think about how a lack of love is at the center of our present and or future dystopia. You know, a lack of love for those who are different, a lack of love for our planet, a lack of love even for those who have committed wrongs, as Nana shows in In his novel. Uh, The painter Marc Chagall said, art must be an expression of love or it is nothing. So the one thing all artists seem to have in common is love. It's kind of an interesting uh, definer. Uh, But it's fascinating for me to think about because I I wonder if there are exceptions. And I I thought about works by horror authors, for example, or horrific non-horror stories like Kafka's. And I came to the conclusion that at the very heart of, of every artist is a sincere desire to express a vision and the same applies to someone who loves so stories cause us to feel joy pleasure awe and sometimes negative emotions like fear anger or disgust and art stirs our emotions and make us feel makes us feel alive art takes us on a journey to places we've never been just like love so even if you're expressing an ugliness of the world you're offering a critique you're revealing something so you're somehow creating a different and better path through your critique or your revelation and uh this is a little bit tangential but the psychology Eric Fromm flipped the statement and said that love is an art, like any other art is something that we have to learn to do. We have to learn and practice love, just like we have to learn and practice drawing or playing the piano. So there's a conversation between the practice of love and the practice of art, I think. I'm going to go with the definition that that art begins with love. I've never really truly thought about it like that, and that art is a form of expression that love takes.
1: I like that too, because I think so many people come to their writing as an act of love, even when they are angry or even when they're sharing hard things, and we call something especially writing a labor of love. And then I often associate that saying with childbirth, which is, of course, an act of love and so, so difficult. Uh, And so even if you're associating it with that or something else, whatever it is, it's the same idea. Uh, Here's a great quote from Oscar Wilde. If a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing well. If it is worth having, it is worth waiting for. If it is worth attaining, it is worth fighting for. If it is worth experiencing, it is worth putting aside time for. So I love that and kind of in line with what we're talking about, because we're going to be talking with Nana a little bit about activism. Uh, and it's just so clear how interconnected his art is with his activism, how much this is a labor of love, uh, because it's hard work to change the status quo. And novelists, of course, are doing that grant, as we know. And Nana shows us in his novel how our prison system and our justice systems are fundamentally unloving because they warehouse a disproportionate number of people color. And then the system uses these prisoners labor also in unloving ways. And if you think about it, even the rawest form of activism, a scream of protest is about changing the world. It's about protecting those who are being harmed. It's about stopping atrocities. And so I think standing up for what you believe in, especially if it's for the rights or freedoms of others is one of the purest acts of love. We can exhibit toward people that we don't necessarily know. And writers do this through their creative expression. And that's so meaningful and moving. And I think Nana is so inspiring, because I think he's also really giving permission for writers who want to explore intense things in their work and to give them, you know, not just permission, but I think encouragement to do so.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's encouragement that's much needed. Well, we did it, we started our conversation (laughs) on the precipice of the end of the world, and we've now arrived at how to solve things through the loving acts of art and activism. So I'm looking forward to, to going deeper with Nana and learning more. We'll be right back after this very short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, who is the New York Times bestselling author of the short story collection Friday Black, and now the celebrated debut novel Chain Gang All Stars. He was selected by Colson Whitehead as one of the National Book Foundation's 535 honorees, and he is the winner of the Penn Jean Stein Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Award for Best First Book and the Aspen words literary prize he was also featured in a recent new york Times book review uh column by the book which i love their interview series and i recommend you google that and look it up welcome nana thank you so much for having me it's absolutely my pleasure chain gang all-stars takes place in a near future America where our already dystopian private prison system grows even more dystopian by creating a kind of gladiator sport in which prisoners fight to the death for their freedom. And I've read comparisons of the novel to The Hunger Games, but, but your novel goes further uh, with some incisive commentary on race and incarceration and, and the violence that is often parts of sports and entertainment. So I'm curious if you could tell us more about where you got this idea from or just how it developed into a novel.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's hard to say exactly where, but I think the seed uh, for my interest in this system, the carceral system, that is, came from many things. My father was a criminal defense attorney, and I've sort of spoken before about how um, he told me at a young age he was defending someone who had committed murder. And I remember feeling like, oh, wow, like I guess my dad's a villain. He's a bad guy, helping a bad guy. And I don't know what I said, but I said something sort of, making it clear that I disapproved or something, even as like an 11-year-old or however old I was. And I remember him telling me it's not that simple. And I think that was an important seed that kind of got planted in me. Then as you grow up, you know, in America, I went to school, I feel like what was maybe general cynicism of the criminal justice system grew into a much more acute disdain probably or like contentiousness after the murder of Trayvon Martin, I was activated in a certain kind of way as I think many people my age were. And so I think I as that I'm a, I'm a writer, right? So I think as I'm working through writing stories, I'm figuring out what I care about in the world, what it means, what feels meaningful to me. And um, I felt very interested in the different systems that get us to forget each other's sort of communal humanity. And when I was working on my first book, Friday Black, I had an image or this idea for this woman in the eye of the arena. And I didn't know everything about her. But I was interested by by her story. And I was thinking about how could someone be in this situation. Why is she in that situation. And pretty quickly I sort of decided that she would have had to have been a criminal. For so many people to watch her in this context. This sort of dehumanizing context and be okay with it. That led me to doing some research. And then I was like uh oh. I think I have more than what I can fit in a short story. And seven years later, here we are.
1: Wow, Nana, that's uh, quite a journey there, the seven years from story to novel. And uh, it's just getting so much critical acclaim, which is awesome. And I love that you dedicate the book to your dad. And I wonder if you might say a little bit more about that. I mean, you said he said it's not so simple, but how did that continue to influence you and even your writing as you got older?
2: Well, yeah. So my father, I, I dedicated the book to him. He passed a little bit after my first book came out. Uh, he had cancer, and um, I know that he felt some type of way that I dedicated my first book just to my mom. You know, so <laughs> I got kind of let him get one. But in terms of uh, his influence, yeah. That so like there's that initial seed, but then through my life, I know him as someone who defends people who many other people won't because he also. Dealt with a lot of people who didn't have a lot of funds, who didn't have a lot of access to money, and some many people who were immigrants um, trying to fight being deported and things like this. And yeah, I just like by working with him, I just had like a very close up reminder that everyone's a human being and everyone's trying their best, and people are struggling and sort of desperate. And it's really important to care about them and how you. Maintain that care can be really difficult because of there's so many different aspects of our society that trick us into or make us feel like it's in our best interest to not. And I just like to push back against that in different ways I can, whether it's hyper consumerism or racism, which I think are some of the things I focus on in my first book. I think this book, when I got into the carceral state, was like this. It's a really interesting, explicit lack of compassion that we have um, in the in the case of prisons and it just felt important for me to sort of try to engage that. And I, I really do believe like a seed was planted in me, like without even me really realizing it with my father's work and who he was. But um, it also just felt feels like very naturally what I'm inclined to
0: going further with that, you know, when I was in taking creative writing classes, you know, the ones I took when I were, was younger, they, they essentially discouraged writing stories that were overtly political or activist in nature. You know, the, the class is focused on a, a sort of apolitical aesthetic and craft, which I now view as very misguided. And this novel this is a novel that's artistic, but it's but it's also a call to action, I think. And I'm curious about your thoughts about the overlap between art and activism, I read a really nice definition from you that, that, that art is love taking forms that we can perceive with our senses, and activism is love motivating action. And I love that. And I love thinking about how love is at the core of both art and activism, because with love at the core, harming anyone is an abomination, as you put it.
2: Absolutely. And so <laughs> that class you took, I feel like there's many classes that have a similar sentiment. And it's it's so complicated because I... I I truly wish, I wish I took that class to really even know what they meant when they said it. Because when people say apolitical, they mean so many different things. And some of them are more sinister than others. Like, there's the people who are mad that Star Wars has, quote unquote, become political. Even though it's called Star Wars. (laughs) And I'm like, what do you guys think war is? (laughs) And the Star Wars movies literally start with a political... Background manifesto about diplomats and senators—it's just insane. So that, so those people when they say they why are Star Wars so political, they're really just saying I'm tired of seeing. I don't want to see a woman holding a lightsaber. That's what they're saying. There's a more, but in terms of what you're talking about, there's like a, I try to be generous with those people as well. I think they're trying to say that good art should not operate like propaganda, right? And so what I hope that they're trying to say, and again, this is like sort of my generous reading of a, of, a, of a kind of reductive approach to art making is that you're not just giving someone an easy answer. You're presenting them. Hopefully what you're doing with your art is presenting them with a complicated question. But as we know, the questions you ask and the, the things you choose to focus on, that is political in and of itself. Also, not even just getting to the fact of who even gets to make art in any particular time and space is also political. All of, Every aspect of our ability to thrive or move through spaces has political implications. So it's a great privilege to imagine that you are outside of that. Okay, so that said, I write what matters to me. <laughs> And it matters to me that we have a world where people are suffering greatly. I do think already we have a dystopic sort of society set up. I don't think it's right that the government has the infrastructure capacity and ability to murder people, its own citizens, and that feels bad to me. I also think that it fundamentally, prisons that is, and the carceral state fundamentally cut at the knees our ability to respond compassionately to several real issues like mental health crises or the disease of addiction. I know that the carceral state individualizes and criminalizes systemic issues like poverty. So when I hear people think that they like have would have like tried to not write about things that are political, the joke I used to say on my first book was, If the house is on fire, I'm not going to tell you about what I had in my fridge that day. I want to talk about the house that's on fire and the house has been on fire.
0: And that's what I choose to write about. That's a great way to put it. I love that.
1: Yeah, me too. And I also think there's something so telling when people say, you know, don't be political to people somehow about who we choose to keep down and who has the power to say those words in the first place. So thank you for that, Nana. And I want to talk a little bit more about the intersection of craft, art, and activism because Mm -hmm. you use footnotes in your novel and that's not very common. You rarely see it in fiction. (laughs) Uh, And some of them cite American legal documents and some are fictional. One cites the 13th Amendment it's caveat that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States, except as a punishment for crime. I didn't know about that letter qualification. So I wanted to ask you what your thinking was behind the footnotes and the role they play in the story.
2: Um, thank you for the question. For me, I agree. Like footnotes aren't very, I don't know, are very sexy to have in fiction. And also for me, I also don't, I can't say I'm someone who like loves the idea of it initially, because it breaks the fictive dream. And I was really interested in maintaining that, but I really wanted it to be almost impossible to engage this book, which is a violent book outside of the context, which is sort of thinking about the real life carceral state of America. And so when I include some of these facts, well, sometimes I'm just like setting the world up. Sometimes I'm the footnotes are pretty dynamic. They allow me to almost eulogize people in the book both real and fictional, because I, I, I like the idea of caring about every single person and in some way extending them care as a way to sort of practice what I'm preaching, even in the fictive world. But um, with the 13th, for example, that, um, which is getting more sort of notoriety because of uh, the Ava DuVernay film, that's an important fact, that slavery is explicitly protected in our Constitution. Like I just think that's worth noting because it also sets up a paradigm for what our carceral state is. Because what is slavery? A state in which someone is reduced to like a property, uh, is reduced to like a commodity. Their humanity is overtly stripped from them. That being contained explicitly, it's, it, it it manifests in the way, in the infrastructure and the way we approach the carceral state. And so that that, that fact makes, means that Changing All Stars is not as like so crazy as you might think it is. It's it's just the only re- to me the conceit of the book is not that gladiators are fighting is that the carceral state would k- feel that we had become so desensitized to violence that they would release their ultimate trump card, which is obscuring the violence behind the walls. That to me to me that's the real conceit. Everything else is more just about a volume turning up or on. You know, I'm making the violence greater or bigger or more um, flamboyant, but that is explicit. So like that slavery thing is real. That's true. So yeah, to me creating that context and uh, it gave me opportunities to point to all the different contradictions. This is again, the land of the free that's explicitly trying to protect slavery in this constitution. Um, the young, so many people who have been murdered by the government unjustly people who have spent decades and literal decades in solitary confinement, all the way, the ways in which solitary confinement, in and of itself, should be understood as torture. And again, we're a nation that supposedly doesn't torture. It just gives me a, a, a the footnotes, allowed me a space to sort of air out these grievances and these contradictions that our this country ha, holds that allow this really loveless institution to
0: thrive. In my opinion, taking that theme of violence and actually going outside the prison walls, but in some ways it's a different kind of prison, you know. I was thinking while I read this that as a sports fan... I'm conflicted anytime I actually watch a sport like football these days. I couldn't and, and, and I couldn't help but thinking about how the bodies of athletes, and especially black athletes in the United States, are, are exploited, you know, from yep. everything from unpaid college athletes to, you know, all the brain damage that happens in, to NFL players. So I was curious how much of that was on your mind in this novel. And, and you know, what were you thinking about by placing the entertainment of sport at its center?
2: Well, I'm also someone who loves sports, but I'm also someone who like basically doesn't watch the NFL anymore mm-hmm. because of how explicit the sort of commodification of the human beings who are again, mostly people of color is in that context. We have this sort of sense that like, oh, they're making millions. So it's whatever. And it bothers me. Um, and a lot of that came to a head when Colin Kaepernick was trying to uh, make a statement about the extra, extrajudicial murder of black people, um, by the police and how he was subsequently um, blackballed from the NFL. So, yeah, it's, it's the sports space is one that, and I love it because I like the idea of people working on a craft, the, the joining of the mind and body and working towards something. I think competition in the right context can be really healthy and help us much, achieve a sort of mutual growth. But I think the again the modification of things have soured things greatly. It's really ends up being about money and not about the humanity of these people. It's not really even about their craft. It's about the drama and the money. It's about this. It's this telenovela that results in a lot of money for ultimately some billionaire. And um, there's always this moment that feels sort of sad, where after the championship is done, the trophy. It's like not to LeBron. Here's you go. Mr. Bus, like some white guy at the top mm-hmm. or a white woman at the top who's like, this is actually theirs. This whole thing is theirs. This stadium is theirs. And that's just okay. <laughs> and, um, it ends up, it, 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 there's a, it just created a really useful model for me in terms of the prophetizing of a spectacle. And, um, so yeah, sports were in my mind in a lot of ways. And I, again, as I say this as a sports fan, but, uh, it ended up being a useful sort of paradigm for me to think about in creating the system that is changing all-stars.
1: Hmm. Another useful paradigm is NFL as telenovela.
0: <laughs> I love that analogy.
2: Yeah. It um, is, though. That's what it they- it's that's what all these sports are now mm-hmm.
1: no totally i just like it struck me and uh another thing that struck me that you said earlier is that we're living in a kind of dystopia now which of course i agree with you and the novel is a dystopian novel and we usually think of that as being futuristic but this is like a warped vision of the present so could you just speak about what you mean like dystopia happening now and what is your definition of dystopia and where it fits in
2: it's a good question and and to be honest like this, whether it's dystopia, which is more like a sort of thematic genre and then other genre like labels, I mostly identify with them after people have given them to me <laughs> yeah i don't I'm super grateful to be considered speculative sci fi realism, whatever people say. I'm like cool, but dystopia or dystopic to me, the way I think of dystopia is where there is widespread. Um, unnecessary suffering administered in a way that is almost unavoidable where like the, where like we are being controlled and by whether it's forces natural or unnatural um, that is causing great suffering. And by that definition, like surely uh, dystopia is now. So that's how I think of it.
0: Well, in closing Nana, uh, since a big part of this podcast is exploring the writing process, I read in an interview that you compared writing to exercising you said you have to change your workout schedule so your muscles don't get too familiar you have to switch up your writing processes and i myself like to write in varied form so i was curious about what it was like for you to go from writing short stories to the novel or just how you kind of uh, shake it up with your workouts it was um <laughs> so story to novel i mean it it ended up feeling
2: pretty different just because um i i mean i feel like i'm always getting by a project by like, the skin of my teeth doing whatever I can desperately to like somehow make it to the end um, but with the not with the short story what I love about it because I love revision so much I can get a first draft relatively early and I have stories even right now that are not out that I've been thinking about in the back of my mind or revising actively or some not actively but semi-actively for getting ready to be 10 years and I feel very comfortable with that With a novel, it's very hard to get into that state, which I prefer, which is the state when I'm in revision because it takes so long to get to even a draft. So it's a long trust fall, much longer trust fall. It's a lot of swimming with no shore in sight. And that was scary and very difficult. So it ended up being more about like that sort of the meditative practice of actually getting the writing done. And I had to sort of, for a long time, I had to let go of that sort of part that so much longs for the revision and just be the creative person. Again, when you think about the process of making a book, you're you're almost re becoming reborn every time because you're in this creative, just generative state for a while. Then for me, you're spending years in the revision state. Then you have to get back to be comfortable with the newness again. You have to feel comfortable going back to the generative place, which is uncomfortable because necessarily you've been reading a lot of much more polished stuff for maybe a long time. For me, it's for years. <laughs> so now you have to get – because then if I remember when I was starting, I was like, do I suck? Like, why do I suck at writing now? Then I was like, oh, yeah, because I, I feel that way because not only have I been reading polished work, at that point I've been reading a finished book. You know, so you think I think of myself as the writer of Friday Black. But before the there's Friday Black, I'm the writer of How to Sell a Jacket, which is what Friday Black was called before that. And before that, I'm the writer of I don't know what the story is, but I think it's gonna have a chainsaw and you know. And you have to like kinda of remember writing comes in phases, at least for me. And so remembering oh wait, no, you aren't just a writer who made Friday Black. You're the writer who who was there in year one of the five years you got to get to Friday Black and so re falling in love with that generative more exploratory i don't know person that trust falling era is um was very difficult but you know once you got there it felt super um i was proud to have done it cuz it was it was an ambitious project and it, i'm i'm sort of shocked that it even exists but yeah that learning to remember that there's phases and I have to remember it again. Cause now I'm well, my next thing I have to be, okay, you have to go back to being a child back to a, it's kind of like the beginner's mindset. You
0: have to kind of keep that up and that's, that's beautiful, but it's hard. It's amazing. It's always a new novel. You're always starting something new and you might've learned something in the last one, but there's a whole new world to create.
2: So you can't use the same tricks or else that would be the same. You know, that's what George says about for every, every story. Every story says you can't use what you did in the last one
0: for me. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, This was wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. It's really been my pleasure. I appreciate it.
1: We appreciate it, Nana. And congratulations. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend.
0: Brooke, I'm going to point out a trend that you might say I'm a specialist in. Uh, April was National Poetry Month. May is National Short Story Month, at least for the next couple of days. And June is National Audiobooks Month. And I, I bet July is something as well. We'll find out. Perhaps National Campfire Stories Month. Um, so, you know, TBD. Um, but I'm just going to focus on National Short Story Month for now since um, Nana is has a collection of short stories um, and, and then we're recording this in May. And some of you might be asking what National Short Story Month is and if there's a specific program dedicated to it. And yes and no. Short Story Month is a month dedicated to the short story form. It is celebrated by readers and authors alike. The former set out to read as many short stories as possible, while the latter typically set a goal for how many short stories they'll write. Some overachievers I've heard often write a short story per day. And I have to say that I once wrote one flash fiction story every day for a month in Camp NaNoWriMo. And it was super tough, way tougher than I thought. You know, I had the thing that made it especially tough was I had to pick a new topic each day instead of, you know, fleshing out a single novel idea. So it was just a different kind of challenge.
1: Oh my gosh! I bet. And Grant, I want to share the origin story of National Short Story Month because it happened somewhat accidentally, which reminds me of Nano uh, On April 7, 2007, Dan Wickett, founder and editor of the Emerging Writers Network (EWN), published a post titled "Short Story Month," <laughs> and then drawing inspiration—yeah, <laughs> the exactly—and uh, then drawing inspiration from April being National Poetry Month, he decided to devote the following month to one of his favorite narrative forms by reading and reviewing a short story a day. And so initially that was meant to be, you know, only on EWN, but then the book community surprised him and within days, other blogs and websites had picked up the baton. And I love stories like this. And much like Chris Beatty did with NaNoWriMo, Wicket realized, hey, people like this. And there's something good about spending a month with other readers and writers and people who love short stories. So then the following year redoubles his efforts and here we are. So it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and also like NaNoWriMo, things just spread in this grassroots, unorganized way, and it continues that type of spread, which I love. Other journals and blogs and writing communities picked up on things, and now an organization called Story A Day has picked it up and, and tried to give the month a home. So I just wanted to read their short list of how to celebrate. Story Day recommends buy a short story collection from your local neighborhood indie bookstore. Search online for a short story collection pledge to read a story day in may write a story day in may post the logo on your own online space use the hashtag hashtag short reads to promote your favorite short stories on twitter yeah put out something good on twitter um check out other people's uh, hashtag short reads recommendations so yeah making it more of a community affair speaking of recommendations brooke let's close out the show with some uh recommendations for short story collections any of your favorites
1: Yeah, I have to confess that I don't read a ton of short story collections. And so the last two I read were actually in preparation for this podcast. So I'm just going to lean on those two, Lydia Yuknovich's Verge and Disha Filia's The Secret Life of Church Ladies. But there are two good things about that cop-out, which is that they're both amazing collections. And this is a plug to go back and listen to both of those past episodes because they're excellent and inspiring interviews. But Grant, you read a lot more short fiction than I do. So maybe you can lay something on us a little bit more current
0: yeah I, I love your two recommendations by the way and i'm going to mention one that is on many authors lists but i'm, I'm mentioning it because it's one of nana's favorite short story collections and authors and dennis johnson's Jesus' son it's essentially a classic now i love the feel of the stories and how they weave together into what seems like a, a longer story so it feels almost like a novel or a novella but I do want to point out uh, contemporary collections of stories uh, that just came out and, and, and two of my favorites. Um, one is by Vanita Blackburn, who actually blurred my book, The Art of Brevity, and her collection is called Black Jesus and Other Superheroes. And and then uh, another collection she has is How to Wrestle a Girl, both of them super good. And I uh, think she's a, she's a really emerging author right now, I guess, emerging in the sense that she's becoming better known. So so check out her collections. Whether it's short stories or long stories, we'll be here every week for you with a featured guest and all of the writing inspiration and guidance we can give you. So thanks for listening. Thank you for your comments. And if you can, uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get discovered so that we can invite more people into our wonderful world of storytelling. Oh, and one more thing I almost forgot, but I heard um, some drums beating in the background. A lot of anticipation for this next week is our 250th episode, and we have a special guest We'll see you next week for another episode of Right-Minded.